This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Christy Smith, PhD, is Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at Apple. Previously, she was Managing Principal for Deloitte Consulting's West Division, where she was also the most senior diversity partner, leading the Deloitte University Leadership Centers for Inclusion and Community Impact. She has decades of experience building and leading high-performing teams, and she's a known expert in the fields of human resources and inclusion. Kenji Yoshino, a Rhodes Scholar, is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University School of Law and the Director of the Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. He was formerly the Guido Calabrese Professor of Law at Yale Law School, and he's written several groundbreaking books, including Covering the Hidden Assault on Our Civil Rights. This episode begins with me and Christy discussing some common struggles experienced by LGBT individuals in the workplace. Christy explains how she dealt with these issues in the beginning of her career by hiding who she was. Kenji then joins our conversation to talk about the research on covering, disguising aspects of one's true identity in order to fit in at work, and how this is not only applicable to the LGBT community. He describes how he had to cover in his early career experience as a Yale Law professor and then brings up some surprising examples of others who feel compelled to cover at work, including veterans and people suffering from various illnesses. Kenji provides a helpful framework for understanding the different types of covering people use at work in their efforts to protect themselves from discriminatory attitudes and actions. Together, Christy and Kenji explore the emotional cost of not being able to be your authentic self at work and what can be done to break through. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, I would so much appreciate it if you would rate it and leave a review on iTunes so others are more likely to find and enjoy it too. Now, get set to listen to and learn from two leading experts on diversity, inclusion, discrimination, and justice at work, and what it means to cover who you really are. It's Christy Smith and Kenji Yoshino. Christy, my good friend, welcome to Work and Life. It's great to be with you, Stu. Thanks for that warm introduction. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's great to have you here. We're going to be joined in the second half of the show by uh, um, our colleague, uh, Kenji Yoshino, 
uh, to talk about the work that you are doing together um, on covering. But I thought we might start this segment uh, of the show with just us chatting uh, sure. to talk about um, how you got into this. So you are a phenomenally accomplished professor, professional who is out and raising children with your same-sex partner. And, uh, you know, your portfolio of, of professional activities includes many, many other issues uh, than those that affect the LGBT community. Uh, you've really been in the forefront of bringing greater awareness to the to these complex issues that are faced by by uh, some gay men and, and women at work. And so I, I wonder if we could start with the question of, you know, how you decided to get into this, uh, you know, to 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 invest so much of your time and energy in in, in these issues affecting the LGBT community. Well, let's start at the beginning, and I'm not sure it was conscious that it was uh, strictly for the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I come by this very naturally uh, in, in terms of a mother who was a great uh, activist and uh, really uh, tremendous in terms of social justice and working in Newark, New Jersey, uh, in the 60s, helping educate black men, and mm-hmm. watched my father uh, support her in those efforts in her own career and uh, you know, take part in raising uh, six daughters, uh, all of which are uh, very strong young women. So I grew up in an atmosphere that valued social justice mm-hmm. and fighting for the underdog uh, with a very untraditional uh, father figure um, in terms of his support of my, uh, uh, of my mother and of his daughters. Mm. So I think with that uh, as the basis, my entire life has been about uh, the values of service and the values of seeking social justice and fighting for the underdog. It really wasn't until uh, I made the decision to join Deloitte, uh, and I had been out as a gay woman for 15 years, 20 years, and I... Prior to joining Deloitte. Prior to joining Deloitte, when I made the decision to join Deloitte 13 years ago, uh, I made the decision through the interview process to not hide my identity mm-hmm. uh, and not change pronouns uh, and not do things mm-hmm. that I had done previously because I was simply uncomfortable or felt that it hindered my chances, if you will, or mm-hmm. my professional opportunity. So you had been covering in prior professional environments. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And so uh, so that process of um, joining Deloitte and I was being recruited by another firm at the same time, the stark difference between the two firms was the fact that A, Deloitte wanted to know who I was, not what I had done. Hmm. It was a very different interviewing how, process. How did that come out and how was that manifest? Were there particular questions that you were asked or... Uh, was it just was it nonverbals? I mean, how did that? How did you get that sense? I think it was all of the above. When you join uh, Deloitte, uh, and as I did as a direct entry partner, the process is a long process uh, to come and be admitted into the firm, and mm-hmm. mostly that's to honor the, our culture, uh, but also to make sure this is the right decision, uh, not only for the firm but for the individual. So, so let me just back about, up here one second. Yeah. So what led you to decide at that moment in your life and career that you were no longer going to cover up who you really are? 
because I, I knew I was successful enough that I didn't mm. need to anymore. And I was comfortable enough in my own emotional journey to uh, feel that, you know, I didn't need to play the game anymore. Mm. That if I was going to make a commitment to a firm like a Deloitte, which really was a decision to join somewhere that I knew I would retire from. That's wow. a long-term commitment. Yeah, because uh, you were only like 26, right? Yeah, <laughs> from your <laughs> mouth to God's ears, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so when I joined the firm, uh, I knew that this was a, a, a long-term commitment, mm-hmm. and I couldn't do that unfaithfully by mm-hmm. hiding who I was. Hmm. So you had you had a track record of success that gave you the confidence to be more uh, true. Correct. Correct. And it, it, if I could just stay on this for for a moment longer, is that um, I mean, do you regret not not uh, revealing more of yourself sooner in your life, or do you feel like yeah, the time was right for me? I mean, my guess is that you probably encourage young people. Well, I don't know. How, how do you advise young people? Uh, on this question of when to reveal oneself. Yeah, I'm not sure that regret uh, is the right word. Mm -hmm. I am saddened Mm -hmm. by the missed opportunities, Mm -hmm. by having covered or hidden an aspect of who I was. You know, I often say in our work that Kenji and I have done in covering uh, is that it's almost as if you're going to work, working a second job. Hmm. And that's, almost the feeling of only giving half of yourself to your work, half of your brain, half of your passion, half of your emotional connection, because you're working so hard to work that identity instead of your job. And so what I, what I look back on... Can you give uh, us an my, example of what kind of like extra burden or work that requires, the second shift, as it were? Yeah, I, it requires not engaging in personal conversations. Mm-hmm. So when asked um, very typically on a Monday morning, what did you do this weekend? Mm -hmm. I would talk about, I would probably give one response. Oh, I, I, you know, went for a long run. I'm training for a marathon. What'd you do? And I'd immediately deflect by asking a thousand questions Mm -hmm. to the person who was talking to me. Mm -hmm. So as not to have to field another personal question about Mm. what I had done over the Mm -hmm. weekend. And all the time you're, I suspect just feeling like you've got to defend, defend. Exactly. It doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And I, it's distracting because it's mm-hmm. not only is distracting in the moment because you're working so hard to protect your identity, but it lingers. It lingers afterwards. For me, when I walked away from a conversation, I felt sad, less than, and it impacted the next, 15 minutes, sometimes a half hour, I just would be distracted by the fact that I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable revealing my own identity as a gay woman. Of course. I mean, if you're, you're basically having to lie yep. about yourself and yep. that, that's got to, you know, create all kinds of uh, angst uh, and, and doubt uh, about, you know, confidence in your professional life. Exactly. Exactly. So I wonder about the missed opportunities. Mm -hmm. I wonder about the missed relationships that I didn't feel I could develop. Uh, I wonder sometimes in some instances, could I have been more successful? Could I have served Hmm. my client better? Um, While there were no great 
catastrophes, uh, I, I am left with wondering if I had felt comfortable in bringing my authentic self to work or my whole self to work, mm-hmm. would I have had more energy to engage and to have human connection on a deeper level and then be able to be more productive? So that's a huge cost, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It absolutely is. And it's consistent with the research that Kenji and I have done uh, that we wanted to look at, you know, we, we, I embarked on this study. It goes back quite some time. I uh, saw my friend Kenji Yoshino in 2006. Who will be give, joining us in just a couple minutes. Exactly. Give a talk on his recently released book mm-hmm. in which he elaborates on this term called covering that Irvin Goffman introduced to us in 63, which really states that um, how we uh, downplay or hide a stigmatized identity. And Kenji beautifully talks about this in his book and, and the transformation uh, he went through, but also the legal cost of mm-hmm. covering. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I wonder if you could just stay on the issue f- for a moment, because I'll ask him about sure. that, of where you see the business costs. Because you were talking about lost opportunities to connect with clients in a meaningful way, to enrich those relationships. Uh, wh- what have you thought about or, or even assessed in terms of the, uh, you know, just the economics of it? Well, what we saw in our research is that uh, three things, generally. That covering is happening not just in life or in the law, but it's happening at work. And 61% of our respondents said that they are actively involved hiding an aspect of themselves while at work. Mm -hmm. Secondly, as a result of that, people are showing up feeling less than and suboptimized in their roles. The third point is that people who cover or feel they have to cover they're contemplating walking out the door. Because mm, they, so they the can't be who they are. Is retention. Mm-hmm. So productivity and retention. Kenji, welcome to our show. Thanks so much, Stu. It's great to be here. It's great to have you and Christy here. Kenji, we were talking uh, before uh, you joined us about the costs of a covering to productivity, to retention, to one's sense of uh, confidence in oneself. But we started with, uh, with Christy telling us about how she came to this work. So I wonder if you could give us the short version of what brought you to, uh, to focus on this issue in your professional life, you know, in addition to all the other work that you do as a constitutional law professor uh, at Yale and now at NYU. Absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. So for me, it was really just the experience of being a gay man in the workplace and particularly in academia. And you know, like many other gay people, I overcame different uh, demands to downplay my identity, ranging from conversion. You know, there was a time when I just wanted to be straight to passing, which is when I was in the closet, to by the time I entered the workforce, covering, which is admitting that you have a particular identity, but making every effort to downplay it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Stu, I'll never forget, you know, walking down the corridors of Yale Law School as a junior law professor and having a very well-meaning colleague put his arm around me and say, Kenji, you'll do a lot better here if you are a homosexual professional than if you're a professional homosexual. What does that and mean? He knew exactly what he meant. What he meant was that I would go further and faster 
if I were a constitutional law professor who just happened to be gay, who taught you know federalism and judicial review and separation of powers, than I would if I were the gay law professor who taught gay rights subjects and litigated gay rights cases and wrote on gay rights issues. Hmm. Unfortunately for me, my passion was the latter, you know, mm-hmm. doing gay rights work. But for a couple of years, I tried to accede to this demand, such as the terror of the tenure track, as you as an academic yourself know. But after a while, I realized that I would much rather not get tenure as somebody who I was than get tenure as somebody who I wasn't. How did you come to that decision, Kenji? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it was really cumulative. It was just a sense of feeling like I wasn't doing the things that were at the top of my game or at the front of my mind and that those two things were related. I looked peripherally and I saw that my colleagues who taught constitutional law were teaching a lot more gay content in their classes because this was the 1990s when cases like Romer versus Evans were breaking, you know, same-sex marriage was on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very exciting time to be in that area of law. And so I felt like this was crazy that I was gay and passionate about this, but couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But I would say the decisive factor, Stu, was that the person who actually mentored me when I was at Yale Law School, who was an openly gay man, came from the ACLU to teach um, sexual orientation on the law and taught me that class. But once Yale had hired me in the tenure track, they no longer kept him on because he was just a lecturer and they Mm. wanted somebody who was a full-time professor. So there was this kind of irony that they wanted a gay person, but they didn't necessarily want, at least according to this individual gave me the advice, a person who was too gay or uh, was too passionate about working on gay rights issues. And so that's when I started wondering about what was going on and whether there was a word to describe this phenomenon, because it wasn't conversion. It wasn't passing. Nobody wanted me to be straight or to say I was straight or to stay in the closet. But it was this notion of you can be different, but downplay it. So Mm -hmm. instead of having diversity and inclusion, it was diversity or inclusion. You can be included so long as you downplay the things that make you different. So I cast my net out on the sociological waters, and I found this term covering from Irving Goffman. And the more I delved into it, you know, I realized that I, I do think that this hits LGBT people first, but I think that we're just the canaries in the coal mine, that I think that once you start pulling on this thread, it really becomes a universal phenomenon. Well, we, so, we all wear masks, right? Exactly. And, and when we're talking about conversion or passing, it's really easy to see that um, the bridges break down. And so far as you know, racial minorities or women are usually not asked to either convert or to pass. But because covering is about behavioral aspects of identity, and as you say, you know, wearing a mask, uh, all of us downplay aspects of our identity that we think are not going to play well in the mainstream. And where this is particularly pernicious is when society or an organization has, at some level of generality, set its face against discrimination or bias on that basis. So all the organizations that Christy and I surveyed believed in inclusion on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, on the basis of sexual orientation or disability. But when we actually talked to respondents about whether or not they felt like they had to downplay those identities in order to be fully included, as Christy mentioned earlier, we saw a supermajority of respondents saying that they actually had to choose between being included and being diverse. Wow. So, Christy, what did you make of that startling distinction? 
Well, I mean, it wasn't uh, unanticipated. I will say, for for a large part, I, I, I will say that the most startling finding for us that actually straight white men, 45% of straight white men cover uh, at work. And I think for us... Can you say really, more about what that means? When you say straight... Well, it, means, it, it means that when we did the survey, we didn't anticipate... We, we I, I, Kenji, you can jump in, but we certainly anticipated that we would find that traditional minority groups covered on one dimension or another. What we didn't necessarily anticipate was the large number of straight white men who also stated that they covered or hidden some aspect of themselves. Interestingly, to your first guest's point on flex, many of the straight white men covered that they were participating in their son's or daughter's soccer game, they would say they're leaving for a meeting instead oh. of leaving for the game. Oh, so covering their, their family responsibilities, for example. Exactly, exactly. Was that the most common kind of uh, covering uh, activity by the straight white men in your study, or were there others that were also apparent? There, there was were others. Spread too, and so far as people reported covering age uh, a lot, so... You know, I color to hide gray hair and look younger uh, really? was a very, very common answer. People also covered their uh, class background. So if mm. someone were coming from a working class background mm-hmm. or their parents had not been professionals, that would often be something that would be a form of affiliation-based covering. Mm-hmm. People would cover their veteran status. Mm-hmm. People would often cover the fact that they... They'd cover had- their veteran status because that was stigmatized? Yes, that yes. people would say that, uh, particularly in advocacy-based covering, where which is where you don't stick up for your own group, that people would report uh, hearing an anti-military joke and not speak up, mm-hmm. lest they be perceived as overly strident mm-hmm. or uh, militant, you know, pun intended. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. also, on affiliation-based grounds, veterans would often report PTSD. And so for people who might be listening to this thinking, oh, well, this is just trivial, um, you know, we all do this, and so therefore everyone should have to do it. The veterans who reported affiliation-based covering on the basis of PTSD were very candid. I mean, I think we were really honored by how uh, candid the responses were. So uh, say, first define that term more for our listeners, Kenji. When course, you say affiliation-based covering. Disorder, yeah. And veterans often felt like they needed to engage in affiliation-based covering about and, their PTSD. So what does that mean, affiliation-based covering? So affiliation-based covering is the form of covering that goes to behaviors that can trigger stereotypes about you. So the idea is uh, I might tell you, Stu, very proudly that I'm a veteran, but I might not tell you that I uh, have PTSD because Mm -hmm. I worry that that will trigger Mm -hmm. conscious or unconscious biases Mm -hmm. that you have towards Mm -hmm. uh, how I'm going to behave. Okay, so you were proud of those veterans in your study who spoke to you about the fact that they were doing such covering? No, I was proud of the fact that they were very candid about it Mm -hmm. and that they were very pragmatic about it. Because Mm -hmm. what they said was, we do this, and there's actually an easy fix. Because Christy and I are very practical people. Um, That's one of the reasons why I think this research is powerful and also a reason why we get along so well. Which is it's why I like you too. <laughs> exactly, but you know we don't want our researchers to sit on a shelf, right? So we crowdsourced this, and we said, How, uh-huh. "What can we do to help you uncover yourself in ways that would be helpful to you?" And some of our military respondents said, "Well, actually, when we were in the military itself, and we had PTSD, we had a buddy system, so that somebody would know that we had PTSD, 
and would actually support us when we were in situations mm-hmm. where um, that manifested itself. So it's a pretty easy fix, right? Which is that, I mean, the PTSD itself is not a fix, but actually assisting people who have it is an easy fix. Because if I'm going into a meeting and I have PTSD and, you know, a car backfires in the street and I suddenly have an episode, but Christy is there with me at the client meeting and she's on she my team and she has my back and she knows my condition, then she can actually run interference for me during that so meeting. Social support so is so critical. Kind of uh, solution set that we're never going to get to in terms of including right a diverse workforce unless we can get individuals to be completely candid with us about the forms of micropressures or microaggressions that they experience with regard to their identities. This is really second generation stuff. The first generation stuff is more blatant and more easy to attend to. So if an employer says, no racial minorities or no veterans or no women allowed, then they're going to feel the heat of the market immediately, if not the heat of the law. Right. But it's the small stuff, the subtle discrimination. It's much more subtle. Mm -hmm. Of course we want women. Of course we want gay people. Of course we want veterans, but the extra effort that's needed in order to send those cohorts welcoming cues is not being done Mm -hmm. to give individuals the support they need. And going back to where we started with straight white men, I think that one of the ways in which you get individuals to flip from resentment to solidarity yes. is to show them that statistic about 45% of straight white men cover along at least one axis. So, so it's something that we're all struggling with. Exactly. And so no cohort is immune from this. And I think oftentimes, although many straight white men are too polite to say this, mm-hmm. when they listen to a diversity presentation, they're sick and tired. Of course of they are. Either no, I've been there. or demonized. So, Christy, tell us uh, what what it is that you're doing in with the work uh, uh, of uncovering in in your practice. So, I think that there are two buckets that the solutions that we both crowdsourced and now we've implemented in organizations. There are two buckets that they fall in. One is the personal bucket, and what do I do in order to uncover? And the second is organizationally. What can an organization mm-hmm. do? So on a personal level, I'll give you, there are five that we generally uh, look to, but I'll, I'll give you a couple just to give you a flavor. First is to develop your personal uncovered narrative. So how does your personal diversity or experiences define who you are at work and your leadership? This is part of building organization or professionally your personal brand. The second thing from a personal standpoint is to share your story, your personal uncovered narrative instead of your professional resume. And we have leaders who are actively involved now in when they give presentations, starting with who they are, not what they are. Mm. Their experiences of growing up being the first one to go to school in mm-hmm. their, in their, uh, or college in their family or being first generation. Mm-hmm. The third is whatever has, has been a source of, of struggle for them. Is that the key to the narrative that that sort of creates that sort of that sense of trust? It, it is what they believe they've had to cover mm-hmm. because it would they think that that would impact their sense of opportunity or commitment. And do you find when you're coaching people, particularly executives, you know, to 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 be able to convey these stories that they, I mean, what do they wrestle with in, in coming up with that? Or or is it is it an easy thing for most people to be able to do? I think that they wrestle with the vulnerability mm-hmm. first and foremost, and the 
standard, this isn't how we've always done it. <laughs> but the millennial This isn't normal for me to talk about yeah, this exactly. publicly. Yeah, exactly. So and how do you help them? are forcing us hmm. to have to uncover and to kind of inject humanity back into our organizations. So how do you help, how do you, what do you do to coach people through that, that anxiety of vulnerability? We generally do that on a one-on-one basis. So that is individual coaching Mm -hmm. around what they stand for, what they're hoping to accomplish from a business standpoint, and how revealing their own story, we get them to tell us their stories, how the revealing of their own stories and the, uh, the, the challenges that they went through and overcame as a result of that play into developing followership, developing an atmosphere or culture of bringing diverse experiences uh, to solve business problems to the table. All right. So, so it's, it's your, your, your sort of belief system about diversity. It's your personal mm-hmm. story about where you've had to cover and how you dealt with that. What's the third piece? Well, and then I think that that from a personal standpoint, it's dare to have the conversations across difference. You know, we spent so much time in this in the last 10 years talking about emotional intelligence as a great attribute to great leaders. And that is true. But what we need to do is move to emotional maturity, which is this ability and this competency to take my own knowledge of myself and create an environment in which I can, and a conversation, that I can have conversation across difference and invite other people's stories into the room. Hmm. And that is a different competency. Mm-hmm. It takes more time, which we don't like in our organizations, mm-hmm. but it creates great teams and great innovations. It enables us to delight our clients, all of that. So I think from a personal standpoint, those are some of the things we look at. Mm -hmm. Organizationally, of course, we want to understand and do the analytics and the diagnostic around is covering happening in your organization? And if it is, what is the impact? So administering our survey to understand where the blind spots are and understand where and if covering has happened. So uh, I'm sorry, finish your thought, please. Well, I was just going to say the second step to that Mm -hmm. from an organizational standpoint is to understand where bias along with covering shows up in your talent life cycle. So examine the analytics in your hiring, retention, attrition, performance management systems. And the combination of that data gives us an opportunity to specifically identify where the breakdown or the stalling of leadership efforts is happening and to provide point solutions to those business units, those working groups, rather than just a blanket initiative or program across the entire organization, it's, which we've done for 30 years. It's got to be tailored. So, Kenji, what have you found to be most most challenging about the work of uh, engaging you know, organizations and or in, other institutions like a- academic institutions in in doing you know the fundamental work of diagnostics, which is what we're talking about here. Yeah, I we actually haven't um, struggled that much. I mean, I think that the real struggle is just in um, beginning the conversation because mm. I think once people. Um, glom onto the idea. You know, one of my favorite lines is uh, Gloria Steinem saying that until we came up with the phrase sexual harassment, we couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> Not that sexual harassment didn't exist. Of course it did, but we needed the vocabulary in order to get our arms around the phenomenon. The so, problem needs a name. 
Exactly. So, you know, part of this is a project of public education and um, self-diagnosis and organizational diagnosis. And uh, it's been a very happily uh, a pretty smooth ride for, for both of us in terms of um, different sectors of um, society, certainly corporations, but also educational institutions, uh, really driving to take the survey and to understand um, both how uh, they might be diminishing the authenticity and commitment of the individuals who are uh, in those organizations, but also how they might be diminishing organizational effectiveness across the board. So w- can you tell us, either of you, about uh, you know a success story that, that you're either in the midst of or that you have been a part of in, in doing this work of both diagnostic and then uh, intervention uh, to create uh, meaningful change in the, in an organization or educational institution. Well, the uh, uh, phenomenon that that Christy was sharing earlier was the um, share your story campaign, you know, and uh, at Deloitte, which is a form of mature vulnerability, and so various versions of this have gone out. And I want to be very careful in, in how I frame this because uh, it's not that uncovering talent led to share your story, but I think both of them were outgrowths of uh, Deloitte's commitment to authenticity and leadership. Mm-hmm. And what Sharing Your Story is, is exactly what Christy was alluding to earlier, where 60 senior leaders were videotaped and asked to tell not their kind of resume stories, which are extremely kind of polished and manicured. It's the gloss. Exactly. But rather to show up as human beings. You know, Harvard Business School professor Robin Ely is uh, fond of talking about mature vulnerability, and I think that's a wonderful phrase. So mm-hmm. the idea is what happens when you actually show up as a human being in one of these videos, and the answer is that those videos go viral you know, within the organization because people not only say, well, if you have you know, an individual who shares her story and says, well, I had to cover you know, the fact that, you know, I was gay or I had to cover the fact that I was Latino or I had to cover the fact that I was uh, black or I had to cover the fact that I was a woman and here's how I overcame it. That's not only inspiring for people within their cohorts, it also sends a signal, which, again, as Christy was alluding to earlier, is particularly important for the millennial generation, as Mm. you know better than anyone else do. This is a generation that almost seems unionized as a generation. (laughs) It seems like a generation that... Uh, fills me with hope, you know, and their demand for greater work-life balance in order for uh, for greater authenticity at work, uh, in order for more uncovered, authentic engagement with meaningful work. Uh, and so, you know, it's actually no surprise that uh, these videos have gone viral, and that's actually become a model uh, that we've offered to other organizations who have taken it up, this time explicitly under the Uncovering Talent rubric in order to uh, get the message out that, you know, there's a difference between the kind of petulant vulnerability that we might have exhibited as adolescents, where we just don't think about it and we just blurt, and the kind of mature vulnerability Mm -hmm. that says, you know, I don't want to show up looking like, you know, all lights turn green for me all the way down the highway. Like, I actually had struggles, and I want to show up Mm -hmm. articulating those struggles, not so that, you know, other people will pity me or other people will... Uh, look down on me, but rather well, because I'm powerful enough that if I share these stories, it will actually create vectors of uh, compassion and empathy and 
uh, allow other people to understand that those paths of opportunity are available to them as well. To everyone, right. Yeah, I, I mean, and I, go. I think, Stu, you know, just, uh, you know, to, to go back to a couple of examples of where this has actually shifted mindset or shifted culture for yeah. our clients. One, the biggest problem any organization has, and, and Kenji alluded to this earlier, is when you begin to talk about diversity and inclusion, all of the straight white men glaze over, right? Their eyes glaze over. And why, and why does that happen? Why do the eyes glaze and the, the guys in the back of the room just kind of roll back and think, oh, here we I go? Think that because they don't feel or see a path for which they actually belong as participants mm-hmm. in the conversation. Mm-hmm rather than knights in shining armor that are coming in to, you know, sponsor a program or, you know, vilified because they have uh, the, the, the roles that everybody wants. So I, I think that what this research does when we're able to conduct the survey in an organization is that, ironically, it levels the playing field for the straight white male in the conversation of inclusion. And the adoption in the change management process is thus accelerated. So is that is that working? Uh, I mean what what is what is the trigger that helps you to get past the glaze? The trigger, the trigger is, is really the, the statistic, I think. The data. Uh, so, so that is the data. Yeah, so that you you start with a 45% and the path that you went down Stu is a path that many of these executive committees and many of the CEOs go down, which is when we present the 45% of straight white men cover, they immediately want to know how do they cover? And so when we start going through mm-hmm. you know, anything from veteran status to mm-hmm. mental or physical illness to working class background to what have you, immediately you know, people are uh, leaning forward and engaged for the first time. Yeah, and that's we'll, a lot we'll, of covering. That covers a lot of people, not yeah. just gay people. Right. Right, exactly. And in fact, you know, the cohort that we're talking about, I mean, we can cut this data as fine as we want. So that 45% is not just white men, it's straight white men, right? So what we're talking about when we uh, articulate that 45% of straight white men cover is that many people in the room are actually inside the paradigm. They're not on the outside looking in. Mm. They're actually part of this communal. This is my issue too. Yeah. This is our well, issue. And that's critically important, Stu. And that kind mm-hmm. of leads to my second point is what we've done in our organizations with the best intention is abdicate the responsibility for authenticity and human flourishing to a few our chief diversity officer, our chief human resource officer, and a hmm. couple of their staff, rather than... Oh, yeah, we got that giving, taken care of. We have an office right, for that. Given, exactly. Given evidence that this is all of our problems because we're, mm-hmm. all, we're all part of covering or we all experience covering. Now, some of us experience it at greater cost than others. And what this data allows us to do is not only reveal that, but secondly, it's, it, you know, the, the CHRO or the chief diversity officer, their budgets are small relative to mm-hmm. somebody who runs commercial, right, or the sales force. And so if they've got a dollar to spend, they're taking bets every year on when, where to spend that dollar and how to make that dollar go further, right, and have greatest impact. The granularity of our data allows them to make a better bet on where to put that dollar because we are able Mm -hmm. to get to the generation, to the cohort, to the geography in the either U.S. or globally, to the work unit or business unit, Mm -hmm. to the leader. So we're able to get to that very granular level to say, if I've got a dollar to spend, 
this is my greatest mm-hmm. pain point in the organization. So and that's where I'm going to spend it. In, in, in the few minutes, just a couple minutes remaining here, what's the, what's the main message you want our listeners to take away? Let me start with you, Kenji. I guess I would say um, be yourself, uh, not to be too Pollyannish about this, mm-hmm. but be yourself because being anybody else is a lot harder work and you're going to use up a lot of bandwidth uh, to do it. And that when you actually begin to uh, be your authentic self and uncover that, you plug yourself into a power source that redounds hugely to your own benefit and the benefit of your organization. That power source inside of you. Exactly. And, and, and could you just extend that just a little bit further to say how you overcome the fear, the anxiety, the, the risk that one must feel be, you know, in, in, in tapping into that? Well, I, I think that you look at role models. You know, a lot of our respondents said our leaders have to uncover first or we won't uncover, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so that you look for people who have actually been successful mm-hmm. uh, in uncovering and being authentic. Uh, there's actually really exciting uh, data that's coming out about leadership and executive presence and how uh, authenticity is seen to be a pillar of yes. uh, executive presence and, and gravitas. So people tend to trust people more when they experience them to be authentic. So, so that there are real it, benefits to that. It pays off in so many ways. Uh, Christy, what is, what is your final word for our listeners in terms of what you want them to take away? I think, our, I, I think the, what I would want your listeners to take away is that I do think uh, drafting on Kenji's comment to be your authentic self is important. But I think you have to be more intentional and you have to develop that personal uncovered narrative and connect it to how it defines who you are at work and your leadership. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be able to share that story. I just want to thank you both, Christy Smith and Kenji Yoshino, for joining me. It's been a fascinating conversation. I I know our listeners have gained a lot from it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Stu. Thank you. To find out more about Christy's work, you can follow her on Twitter. That's a great way to uh, stay abreast. Uh, Christy underscore Smith. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E underscore Smith 2. And for more information about Kenji's work, you've got to read his a groundbreaking book, Covering. And follow him on Twitter at Kenji Yoshino. That's K-E-N-J-I underscore Y-O-S-H-I-N-O. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christy Smith, Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at Apple, and Kenji Yoshino, Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU and Director of the Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. There's so much wasted effort and productivity in our workplaces when people who feel stigmatized because of some aspect of their identity that's not welcomed in the mainstream have to pretend to be someone who they are not. The task of creating work environments that are truly inclusive of all types of people, unburdened by having to spend all that extra energy on covering, is central to those of us who care about changing the game in the work and life field, about bringing greater freedom for individual self-expression to our work lives. So here's a challenge for you, an invitation to consider creating some change in your world. First, 
do you cover some aspect of who you are that you would prefer to feel free to reveal in the social setting that is your workplace? If so, are there actions you can take following Smith and Yoshino's advice that might help to remedy the costs you suffer? And second, if you're fortunate enough to not have to bear such costs, what can you do to support someone who does? Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you, so you can get in touch with me directly, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu, or on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to learn more about improving performance in all parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit, by creating greater harmony among those different parts, and I'm telling you folks, it's more possible than you might think, Visit TotalLeadership.org where you can find free chapters from all my books and lots of practical tools and tips, all free. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe Rate it on iTunes and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.